everyone, and welcome to Read, Watch, Play. I'm Corinne. I'm Justin. I'm Cleo. And I'm James. And this week we're talking about the topic of escape. In which we covered Cavalier and Clay, written by Michael Chavon. Uh, the Prestige, directed by Christopher Nolan. And 999, developed by Chunsoft. Cavalier and Clay. Is that where we're going to start? We can start wherever the fuck we want. It doesn't matter. This is our about, podcast. Let's talk about the idea of escape. All right, let's so, talk about it. let's talk about how the prestige has nothing to do with escape. Right. I was going to say. I right? feel like you're just trying to set up for your, your big point here. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just no. get that's, it out. That's, it's fine. That's not. That's not what I'm going to say. I was going to say that that these past you know few things that we've consumed have presented the idea of escape very differently. And it's been pretty cool. One in a way that has nothing to do with escape. We get it. But, you know... I mean, it has nothing to do with escape in a thematic sense. I will always... I mean, there is no denying that The Prestige is about two escape artists. But, honestly, like, thinking about it, The Prestige is kind of about an inability to escape. From your own uh, petty need for revenge. I mean, it was kind of about an inability to escape from your own obsession from your own situation from you know a lie that you've been telling your whole life um obviously the the plane reading uh, his wife was unable to escape from the tank like there's a there's a lot of ways in which escape is presented in the prestige and then taken away or made impossible that's true yeah, it's like a control to the experiment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I remember when you first kind of brought that up between some of our kind of shortly after our prestige episodes, and we were talking about it off mic, kind of behind the scenes. Um, and you mentioned that uh, it's like, oh well, what did this have to do with escape? And my immediate reaction is just like, oh well, yeah, there's there's an escape act at the beginning, and that takes up a solid five minutes of the film. So there we go. Because <laughs> I've got to say, I going into it. I remembered that movie as being much more about escape than it it really was. I don't know why. Maybe it was because just the whole the tank escape illusion, uh, both the failed one at the beginning and the kind of the one that's at the core of the rest of the movie, the that last, the best transported man. Maybe it's just because that stuck so much in my head and that, that image of ver- the various jackmen in the tanks was was really sticking in my mind that I thought of it as being very much about escape. But yeah, I certainly going back and watching, I think you make like a really good point where it is it is much more about that inability to escape. And maybe that's why that helps stick with it so much. But yeah, it really was not consumed with that in the way that my memory of it was. Out of the three things we covered for the series, 999 is definitely the most literal interpretation of escape. Uh, I think I think Cavalier and Clay come second because he, you know, there is, he is like an escape artist and he's traded that. And so there are some like literal escapes, but then also there is a theme of like World War II and trying to escape from Prague and that whole like World War II backstory. And then you have the prestige where things like the themes get a little bit more abstract when it comes to escape. And then you have characters who are escape artists, but again, it's not like always at the forefront of the plot yeah and i think that that is even reflected in the elements in the film where it does come to the front right like we see very few successful escapes over the course of that movie it really is a movie that is largely defined by failed escapes even in the most literal sense right you have his wife who can't escape you have the various again 
the Jackmen that cannot escape. And even the, the multiple failed attempts by both men to escape, right? Sure. They're trying to escape from their obsession and they get the diaries of their rivals and they think that's going to have all the answers they need to finally be able to put this to bed. And then it twist it doesn't twice. Yeah. And what's his name can't escape from prison or from his own execution. Right. And it's just, it's just a lot of, it's a very claustrophobic movie in retrospect. Yeah, that's true. I think it's a good word for it. Yeah, it's also the movie or the one that in which the characters are purposefully, like intentionally putting themselves in situations that they're going to need to escape from. Like they're voluntarily doing that, trying to like prove a point about what they can accomplish. And at the end, when it really counts for Christian Bale's, one of the Christian Bale characters, um, and that's like when it really does matter whether he can escape or not, he can't. Yeah, that's true. And the other two things that that we were that we were reading in this uh, Cavalier and Clay and Nine Nine Nine, it that that escape is 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 much less voluntary than than in the Prestige. It's I mean, it's explicitly being stuck in the situation with which you are unhappy or in which you are, say, you know, trapped in some psychopath's death ship. <laughs> so. It, really a very different tone. But no, yeah, no, I completely agree. It was definitely something that I think is is a good coloring. Right? What is that difference between being someone who professionally or, I mean, even just because of obsession, keeps putting yourself in these situations from which you want to escape versus being forced into them? But it also, I think that also comes back to the idea of a designed escape. True. Because all of the all of the illusions in the prestige are manufactured, and all of the rooms that you escape from a nine 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 are manufactured, and many of the more literal escapes in Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Claire are manufactured. Though, I, as we mentioned in the episode, the 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 escapes around which that story actually revolves are are not literal escapes, but more metaphorical right but the literal ones literal ones all are all do take place in the comic well for the most part i mean you have the literal escape from yeah the escape from Prague, the the river escape at the beginning right the uh the kind of botched suicide attempt towards the middle but yeah the the number of those literal escapes are is is much lower than the number of metaphorical ones so what does that all mean (laughs) (laughs) And that's a wrap. <laughs> Just think think about that for a while, huh? Yeah, I think that that's like a really good parallel, though. It bringing up the kind of the manufactured nature of a lot of these, and it whether it is sort of by someone's own design, like in something like the Prestige, where I guess the Prestige really kind of goes towards both extremes, doesn't it? Where you have the the literal the tank escapes that various people perform throughout that are of their own design or of Michael Caine's character's design versus let's take something like 999 where most of the people who are involved in those escapes are not involved in in their design or creation. And they don't willingly put themselves in the yes, exactly. in that position. Yeah, and it feels like that's that's such a big difference for that. And again, I think it highlights a lot of the differences that come up in Cavalier and Clay and the relative... I mean, as silly as it sounds, the relative ease with which characters in Cavalier and Clay escape from physical bondage. 
you know, which was obviously a, you know, not a direct analog to actually escaping from Europe prior to World War II, but the entirety of Joseph's escape from Prague is, occurs in what, the first chapter, the second chapter, whereas his sort of mental escape from Prague and his ability to like really kind of shift over to America and just kind of escape from all of the things that were tying him to that. I mean, or even say Sam's escape from, I guess you could arguably say Brooklyn, if you're going to use that to represent kind of the life into which he was born versus the one that he found himself wanting to live. That takes the entire book, right? Like it's that it is that much harder to escape things that are, I don't know, it, it's so much easier to physically, like, say, escape a place, right? Mm. Like, that Sam can leave literal Brooklyn, that Joe can leave literal Prague, but it's so much more for Sam to have that experience of escaping from the expectations that he feels society has on him, yeah. that he has put on himself, these ideas of what success are, what a, you know, a quote-unquote, like, happy family are, what he should want, the kind of person he should want, the kind of life he should want. And yeah, I mean, compared, I mean, compared again to something like Joe's escape from his physical escape from Prague, like it, as silly as it sounds, the easy part is getting out of soon to be Nazi controlled Europe. And bringing it back around again, we see that similarly in the prestige where the physical bondage is easy, but the emotional bondage is something that neither of them can really get past. Yeah, and that's the thing that just consumes them, right? Yeah. It's interesting because, at least with um, both Cavalier and Clay and The Prestige, there's also an element of escapism, like a distraction to try to like take away your troubles from everyday life. Because with Cavalier and Clay, they're creating the comic book, right? Which is serving as entertainment, but also like a much-needed fantasy world during World War II when people needed to see, like, images of the Nazis being defeated and, like, kind of give that hope, even though it's, like, a fictional universe um, with characters who have superpowers that obviously no one has in real life. And then with the Prestige, they basically do these magic tricks and these, you know, these... They're illusionists, I guess, right? Technically is the term. I don't know. <laughs> um, and people go to kind of, like, be distracted and to be entertained. I don't know whether how that fits with 999 or if it does at all i mean because it's not like they're it's not like in certain other pieces of media where it's like oh let's or it's basically a snuff film type thing like let's watch these people struggle to like solve these puzzles just for our entertainment it's more like it's much more of a vengeance thing like there's a purpose there that's other than just to be entertained i almost feel like the way that that comes into 999 is if you you have to take that one additional step back where you start just looking at yourself as the player and saying that your your 999 only happens as long as you're pressing the buttons right and you're there for some amount of entertainment right like if if you weren't enjoying playing 999 you wouldn't play through it five six seven times to see all the endings yeah, and the stakes are only, I mean, you only are invested in the characters and what's going to happen to them because you know that they could die and that they are in, like, very real physical and emotional danger. Like, because you watch people get exploded horrifically. And not only, I mean, with 999, we didn't really talk about this in the last episode, but, we, I mean, we talked about how the gore is different from, say, like, Danganronpa, where the blood is pink, and in 999, the blood is very red, and you do see, like, some images of people who have been killed, but it's the descriptions of 
these like mangled bodies that are really horrific. Like they'll just show like a splatter of blood on the wall, but it'll go on for like pages of description of like where the bones are sticking out of and like oh their intestines were on the wall and then they fell down onto the ground isn't that disgusting and it smells horrible and everyone's vomiting those are the bodies i wanted to see (laughs) i wanted to see more bodies and that's what i was talking about when they kept when they described these mangled bodies i wanted to see them when we finally saw the knife ending you see lotus's dead body and then the submarine ending where you see everybody's body splayed out on the stairs i was like yeah finally some dead bodies (laughs) So uh, this is Corinne's last episode. (laughs) We're all a little terrified. I don't know. I don't know why I wanted it to be like more visually violent, but it just felt like something I wanted to see. And uh, I'm not going to apologize for that. (laughs) You stand your ground. Yep. (laughs) This reminds me of something I saw online, like on a forum about when we, and I looked it up when we were doing Danganronpa, but someone was like, I hated that the blood was pink. Like it should be, ref- it should be red and be gory and reflect like the true horror of the situation. I think they kind of like miss the sense of humor of Danganronpa, which isn't you know it's this. Yeah, we talked about this last time. But the sense of humor in Nine 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 is quite different, and I don't think pink blood would really suit it. But I don't know. It's interesting in general to see like where different, especially games like fall on the violence spectrum, like how stylized it is. Also, like, how much you show, like, does it serve the kind of point you're trying to make? What point is 999 trying to make? James, you should know. Yeah, at what point would I say 999 is trying to make? Without spoiling Virtue's Last Reward. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And operating under the assumption that uh, everyone knew exactly what was going to happen in that game and the next one when they wrote 999. Yeah. Yeah, I I guess guess it's more, do you think 999 is trying to make a point? I think that that's a really good question, right? Like, I... It certainly feels like it's trying to do things, but I, I don't know if it's trying to make a point so much as it is, as it is trying to be, I, almost like I described it in our last episode, just this like super interesting object unto itself, right? This, this intricately designed sort of just like puzzle box that you just solve in a bunch of different ways and you get a little bit more and it, you interact with it and it's kind of interacting with you in what I think is a really ultimately cool and significant sort of way. But yeah, I I don't know if it's trying to make explicitly a a point about something. It's got a lot of themes and it's got a lot of running imagery and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it it maybe overdoes the nine theme a tiny bit. But <laughs> Sudoku is the ultimate puzzle. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sudoku is the ultimate escape. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what it's <laughs> I mean, you're right. So that must be the point they were trying to make. Yeah. But I mean, so it's, I guess that would be where I would land on that. I, I'm not convinced that it has a point that it's trying to make beyond just sort of like being art unto itself. You know, it's just trying to be this, this thing. And it's so much more about what you take from it. Cause I think it does do a lot of, like I said, it does a lot of like interacting with the player, right? Where I think that that's maybe the thing is that the, it's less trying to make a point so much as it is trying to be something that gets you thinking and ha- sends you off in all these other directions and you sort of come to what you will. I think that if it were a lesser game, it would have tried to drive home the point of like, oh, seeking revenge is only ever harmful to you and to those around you. And don't be obsessed with, you know, going back and torturing and killing the people who horribly wronged you and your sister (laughs) i mean because it didn't it could have very easily gone there with santa right 
like have him try to have some kind of like epiphany epiphany which comes up in the game or like just have some kind of ethical evolution of some sort but it doesn't really make that judgment call of like oh well he shouldn't have done this and june shouldn't have like gotten so because you don't see june's part of it until like the very end but santa like you get you get his personality fairly early on so when you learn that he's involved it's easier to like kind of make a character judgment about him i don't know i like that it doesn't try to do that it doesn't try to leave you with some kind of moral at the end of the story yeah i'd agree and to bring it around to the prestige i mean if you look at it that way right where the prestige like we were saying feels so much like it's about highlighting the fact that these two men can't get over their rivalry rivalry with each other whereas 999 goes the totally opposite direction that does not in any way make that judgment call and it's just like yep june and santa did this whole thing went to all these crazy lengths to not only save past june but also to punish the people who did that right because all that they needed was to simulate the events for junpei to be able to send the answers back at no point did they strictly speaking need to orchestrate this entirely complex convoluted thing in which they trick the man who organized their horrific experience into killing his associates or even really have that many associates, like have that many people on the ship at all. I mean, like, did it need to be a nonary game? Really? I don't know. Like I, I could be sold on. It needed to be a nonary game. I certainly don't think they needed to include guy X and the captain, (laughs) you know, where it's greatest character name ever. Oh my God. It's amazing. But you know, in the end it all worked out. If you yeah, get exactly. to the right ending, they get their revenge, and June lives, and everything's great. Revenge is great, guys. Yeah, like that's I think that's the, the, that's the takeaway. Revenge yeah. is great. But I think that no, clearly, I think you make a great point though that it, if it were a lesser game, it would feel like it was about their vengeance. And I think that the fact that it's not right, like it kind of is, but it's also not. It's almost like beside the point that that's what one of the things they were trying to do. Yes. Their vengeance is like a, a similar note in the story to Clover seeing her quote unquote brother's dead body. It's just something that happens and is part of the story and is unavoidable. And the ultimate story is really about Junpei and Akane. Yeah. Mind melding across nine years. Exactly. Like I, I do think that's the big thing is it's just a, it's a series of things with a lot of aspects to it and it's not really explicitly about any of those or trying to make any of those points it really is just here's a whole lot of stuff for you to think about let's see where you go with that like where does this bring you what's your head state after this what are you thinking about where have you gone and it's more i don't know it seems almost more like like some sort of a catalyst to get you going into whatever direction you end up but yeah but i mean so say compare that to the prestige which is about I would argue the downfalls of being consumed with that kind of revenge and not being able to escape from that. Whereas 999 is arguably about just going the complete opposite direction. And you know, that construction of these things from which someone else needs to escape. And I mean, almost about that as therapy. It's, it's funny thinking of the prestige as arguably the most moralistic of the three things that we read, watched and played but uh it kind of is it's making the biggest point about right and wrong and things that will consume you and yeah it certainly seems like the one that has the biggest 
I don't want to say stake in that, but is is most devoted to its own point of view. Because I would argue like Cavalier and Clay has a lot of things to say about that, but I also don't think that it's. I don't want to call the prestige preachy because that's that's stronger than I mean, right? Yeah. That has a certain connotation about like it's that the whole movie is about telling you a thing, and that's not the case. So I don't think that's the appropriate word, but it does feel like it has it has that something to say that like that you were getting at Cleo that I don't think nine 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 has that nine 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 is more about letting you go off, whereas the prestige feels like it's much more about here are these two sides to an argument and neither of them are right, and the real thing to take away is like what what was missed there. You know, that what great partners they could have been, that they could have been a Cavalier and Clay kind of team if they had continued to work together, but it was the fact that they couldn't get over those differences that ultimately, I think, held both of them back, but also drove them on to such great things. I think one really, and this is something that mostly pertains to The Prestige and 999, and 999 actually outright brings this up, this idea of the ship of Theseus. Mm. That's the name, that's the ship of Theseus, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. I'm trying to make sure I got the name right. But the idea basically is like, if you have a, sh- a, sh- a thing, in, in this example, a ship, and you repair the ship over like the years and then let's say like at the end of like 10 years all the parts in that ship have been replaced like is it still that same ship and so bringing in and is if you took all those pieces from the original ship and rebuilt that ship somewhere else then which one of these two things is the actual real ship I also like the sock example yeah, lock the lock sock, sock. yeah I think this, the sock example is way better I like the ship thing because I like ships, and also <laughs> I like boats. Some um, logic. <laughs> that's my. That's what I. That's what all my logic is based off of. Do I like this thing more? But it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting related to the Prestige, where you have basically Hugh Jackman's character cloning himself over and over again, and then one of the clones dies, and there's a horrible question of identity like which one's the real one also does it matter which one's the real one like is it worse to have one of them killed over the other like someone's dying either way but there is this question of identity of like who is you know the original and then also with christian bale's character where there's twins and they're playing the same person so again it's a question of like who's the real one and then with 999 you have all these kind of alternate realities of like different playthroughs you've been through that everything that they talk about during the true ending and then these kind of other standard endings you've reached like is the true ending really the true like which june which junpei it's just it gets very complicated when you try to think especially with 999 it gets very complicated but again it might be another like diagrams with straws kind of situation right the logic of it only reaches so far but you're left with that fundamental question of like who is the true one like an identity which identity is true which ones might be false i mean because you have people pretending to be other people in 999 also or trying to disguise their true identity rather by taking on like a different name and not giving the full truth about who what their circumstances and whatnot yeah i think that uh particularly that the ship of theseus example and particularly with the Prestige was one of the first things I jumped to as well when that came up, because I forgot that that was actually in 999, that they talked about that, and that it was like, oh, it does feel like that's so much like that thing at the end of The Prestige, where they both seem to have all of the memories of it. whoever gets cloned. There, It seems very difficult to distinguish between whether 
a clone is left where the original used to be and the original is teleported or if a clone is made, you know, however many feet off to the side. And I, I remember that as well. And then it came up and that whole idea of that retaining the the soul of something, for lack of a better term. But I also remember thinking, like, it doesn't seem like that has a lot to do with escape, but it would have, whether there was something kind of at the heart of that thought experiment that appealed to both of these things that did seem to be dealing with escape or the inability to escape, and whether that was, whether those two things were somehow tied, did, can anyone else think of some reason why you might see that kind of imagery coming up across these things? I, I wasn't sure if it was an interesting coincidence or if there's something that kind of inherently makes those two things go together like this. So I think one of the things with Ship of Theseus and the idea of like escape in general, I mean, one of the questions that comes to mind for me is if you are like in a Hugh Jackman in the prestige situation, or if you are like the ship, <laughs> I guess, and the only way, let's say like there is no way to truly like escape with your life, with your like identity and yourself like truly intact, but you can, in a sense, escape by either experiencing a kind of literal or metaphorical death of yourself or like part of your identity and part of you will live on elsewhere or like something that is basically identical to you will live on elsewhere. Does that still count as escape? Like, did you still succeed in escaping or is that just like not enough? Is it, is that still a defeat? And I think for at least wrapping that back into prestige is that for Angiers, what he's doing, I feel it facilitates a genuine escape, right? But yeah, I guess the que- that is the question. Like, can you say he escaped? And also that's the thing. It's like, he does it so many times. Like, who's to say that he did successfully escape overall, considering how many versions of him died? And like, somewhere along the way, the original original must have died. I have to assume, I mean, like, it'd be really, that'd be, if it's up to chance, then of course he must have, unless he's just incredibly lucky. I think two things are interesting here. One is that by the end, Angiers had completely remade himself into Lord whatever his name was. Yeah. Who was after uh, Christian Bale's secrets. So it's kind of interesting the idea that by killing himself over and over and over again, Angiers did, in fact, become an entirely different ship, quote unquote. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Um, And the second thing I wanted to say which I'm not sure if I remember at this point. Gosh, guys, I'm sorry. I had two really good points. I said one of them. The second one is Gone with the Wind. I don't see how Gone with the Wind wind has anything to do with this. (laughs) 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 All right, well, I had a second point, but now I do not have a second point because I forgot my second point because I was so excited about comparing Hugh Jackman to the ship of Theseus. So we can can see some of the ways that we've got that... That metaphor of the the ship of Theseus or Lock Socks coming across through, I mean, explicitly in 999 and a bunch of the ways that we see it in something like the Prestige. But does that show up anywhere in Cavalier and Clay? And like, it seems like there's a, the big one that I saw there is that idea of Joe kind of pound by pound shifting to America, right? Yeah, that's the closest thing. That was like my first thought, but it's not quite there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it feels like that's the big thing with, say, uh, it almost seems like that one fits more with the sock analogy, where it's this idea of 
sort of losing a piece of yourself, something something would happen at home and he would he would lose that piece of himself, he would lose his brother, he would lose his accent to a certain extent, he would lose those letters from his parents, his uh, grandfather dies, and things like that, and that he just kind of has to patch himself up with his work and with Rosa and with eventually his son and things like that, and just that sense of over the course of the story him shifting over and sort of replacing himself bit by bit by bit. It it seems like it works less well. It works better with the socks than it does with the ship. Because I think that a wrinkle to that ship of Theseus is that idea of not only do you replace every plank of wood in the original boat, but then you take those original pieces of wood and now you've got a second boat. And what one is what one is the ship. But with the socks where you have just the one and you would say you've just you've lost bits of it or they've broken and then you patch it up little yeah, by little with this new material is it are they the same socks and i think that that's really what joe struggles with for a lot of the book right is he feels like he's losing himself he feels like he's losing that heritage and he does all this stuff to hang on to it but it's it's less and less and less all the time and i think that that's a really difficult thing for him to deal with i think less so than someone like sam who has like similar struggles for sure, but it it feels less and less like Sam feels in danger of losing himself as he does that he realizes more and more and more who he was the entire time. Like it feels like with Sam, he's peeling off patches as Joe is adding them on. Yeah, Sam has Sam has spent his whole life trying to remake himself, and in doing so, so many times has become sort of this like patchwork. Yeah, of expectations yeah. and ideas that aren't really him. And that so much of that comes later in his life when he's kind of been forcefully outed. And it almost seems like that's that's kind of the big last patch that comes off is just that whole that and is so core to who he is and what he's been kind of like trying to find and cover up later on after uh after the raid that occurs on the day that Joe finds out that his brother dies. So you have things like that, and I think that that's I think that that's really where that comes in most for me because, I mean, I think there is even just a big sense of, you know, to what extent, if you do have to so utterly remake yourself, did you really escape? Are you the same person? Did you actually get out or did you just go away? But I think that that's the big thing that each of them struggles so much with is that sense of, did they lose themselves? Did they find themselves? And I think that that question of, whether Joe is still Joe once he's kind of patched himself up with bits and pieces of America is, I mean, that's his main conflict, right? For sure. Yeah. It's the idea. He didn't lose himself and then find himself. He lost himself. And then, you know, well, then he has to determine whether he lost someone else. Yeah. Or, and I think that's the question is, did he, did he ever lose himself? Is he someone else or is he the same person? Like is, is he that same pair of socks? I think it's interesting that the common thread that we're finding between all these things, because I don't know about you, but I was struggling to bridge the gap between 999 and Cavalier and Clay specifically and find some common ground there. I think it's interesting that when we're talking about escape, the thing we keep coming back to is identity. Yeah. Which <laughs> is honestly not where I expected to end up, but here we are. Yeah. I can make some sense though, right? Yeah. I mean, especially, I do feel like a, at least a large part of Cavalier and Clay's sense of escape has to do with identity. Mm-hmm. Sure. 
which is easy to to not think as much about when we're looking at escape and all the different in like all of these ways together. Yeah, and I mean, even if, okay, so let's take it from from that point of view. Let's let's associate escape and identity, and let's bring that back to nine nine nine. So let's say we can see that really clearly, and let's say that Ship of Theseus and Lock Socks kind of helped accentuate that in Cavalier and Clay, and then so we bring that back to nine nine nine. If you look at nine 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 through the lens of identity, I mean, that's in a lot of ways it becomes really clear that of course that's what it's about, right? It's it's identity in a different way. It's a much more literal way in the way that nine 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 is overall. Right, like even with Escape, nine 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 is the most literal thing that we dealt with, and I think that's some of the fun of nine nine nine. Right, is that mm-hmm. there there is subtext and context and stuff, but it also wears a lot of that very proudly on its sleeve. Where it's it's like, yeah, we have this absurd nine theme going, <laughs> and it's just everywhere, and you just have to accept it because we are kind of ridiculous, and it just is. But so if you look at identity there, it's much less nuanced. It's literally determining the identities of these people, right? You need to figure out the identity of zero. You need to find out the actual identity of all these people who you come across. I would say none of whom are really super forthcoming from the beginning, except maybe Seven, who tells you as much as he can. But, I mean, he's even working to figure out his own identity because he doesn't remember who he is. But you have something like that where you go and you're trying to figure out, like, who is Ace actually? Who was the ninth man that you saw ever so briefly? And it does become a lot about that. Like that in order to escape, you need to figure out who everyone is. You need to get that identity down pat in order to... That's true. All of the all of the variance in the game and inching towards success is really comes from the different backstories that you hear. Yeah, and that's really the, oh. the game's larger progression. Like those are the things that you're piecing together between playthroughs is who everybody is, not what's behind every door. Remarkable. Look at that. It's actually all about identity. <laughs> well, Some good progress, guys. All right, the theme is no longer escape. <laughs> the yeah. theme is now identity. All right, so let's look at the prestige. Where have we got identity in the prestige? I mean, oh my I would god, it's because I mean, both I mean, men you... define themselves upon their, rela- their rivalry with the other. With exactly. Which is all fundamentally bound up in magic and escape and the failure to do so. And I mean, and then you have the much more literal identity problem of Borden and... Yeah, each of them, yeah, each of them is so, it, yeah, he's so convinced with discovering Borden's actual identity. He doesn't know that. He wants to find out how he does the trick. Right. But the the key to the trick is nailing down and accurately understanding Borden's identity. Oh, boy. We, uh, we started one topic and we ended up in another one. I like it. Yeah. I like it. It was unexpected. Yeah. And then I would say even on top of that, I would even go so far as to argue that to bring it back to that mix of identity and escape. So let's say each each of the two magicians totally defines their own identity in relation to the other one. I would say that that's not the case until the failed tank escape at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Until then, they're friends and colleagues. They work together. They Right, but they're not... They're basic plants. They're not even... Yeah. Like, you know, real magicians yet. Right. And they are, you get the impression that either of them could go their own separate way and it would just kind of be, it'd be too bad because they work together pretty well and, but, you know, good luck to you, et cetera, et cetera. And, and off they went. Yeah. We never get to see Borden be the, the sexy assistant to Andrews' magician. It's kind of a shame. Yeah. And so I think that's, I think that's the big thing, right? Like it's that. 
that initial hubris because I that is the one thing that I think that we're we're missing a little bit in our attempt to focus on the the failure to escape is that 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 occurs because of hubris right and that that's the other element to this whole rivalry is that sense that of course they could do it right why why would they not be able to get out of that knot that would be the better thing and they know best even though everyone disagrees right but yeah and like that's the thing that ultimately binds them together forever without that they would have just been you know a co-worker for a while right so all right so we've established that for these cases uh escape and identity seem pretty tightly bound together so then that begs the question what does it look like when you have escape without an examination of identity i mean Mm. i guess that's the more you know that's where it gets you know simple you have the escapist just sort of you know, unlocking his chains or you have a, you have the gambling room from 999 where you complete the puzzle and it doesn't, you know, you don't need to learn anything about anyone or you have, I don't know if you have the prestige. That's, that's all escape and identity. Would you argue that? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even say that. Cause I was going to say, would you argue that a failed escape is an escape that is not tied to identity? But I don't think that we have quite enough I don't think we have quite enough evidence to say yeah. that when you attempt to escape from something without investigating identity, that these works suggest that that leads to a failure of escape. Or if you if you don't understand identity, arguably nine nine nine, you would say if if you don't hit the point where you understand the identities, then you can't escape the ship. But I don't think I would go quite that far. I think that's I, I think that that would be something that you could draw from nine nine nine. But it's hard to call any of that really like a failure state because it's all just progress towards the ultimate goal. Like, you can't really fail 999. Yeah. I would say that a f- one sure way to fail an escape is to not understand exactly what it is you're trying to escape from. Because, I mean, the thing that occurs, not necessarily as strongly in these three things, but in several, you know, a lot of different other works, is the idea of trying to, like, get away from something but not pinpointing exactly what the thing you're trying to get away from is. And a lot of times, it ends up that the moral of the story is like, oh, the thing I was trying to escape was, like, within me. I had to, like, figure out this problem personality thing I had going on and escape that. But with, like, 999 even, like, on a very literal level, it's like they don't know who Zero is and they can't properly, you know, you can't get to the true ending without identifying who's kind of pulling all the strings or who's help and who's helping with that and who there's several different kind of sets of people who know a lot more than you as a protagonist know. And you have to kind of figure out who is the head honcho of all of that in order to kind of successfully navigate. And then with the prestige, I mean, you could say, at least for Hugh Jack uh, Angiers, that's a failed escape because he gets so obsessed with the wrong thing. He doesn't, he's, all his focus is on kind of figuring out how to escape. Because kind of, I think... I mean, one of the things that's driving him probably in both the character, all three of the characters, because Christian Bale's two people, um, is that they do kind of want to escape. They want to relieve this feeling of like constant competition, but they want to relieve it by winning. They don't want to like step away from it and say like, oh, maybe I should be like a better person. And maybe this isn't really worth fighting for to this extent where like lives are being lost and, you know like people are being hurt left and right that's definitely i mean like that's a really good illustration of like a failure to escape from that like from a personality problem and then with nine nine or not uh, with a uh, cavalier and clay 
I mean, you have a lot of examples of both kind of failures and successes, right? Like, that's it's very realistic in that way, in that people, they overcome certain obstacles, Sammy and Joe, but other ones I feel like they never truly succeed at getting over, or they just it's kind of like left open at the end as to whether they did successfully navigate that part of their lives and like come to a satisfactory conclusion. So it seems like humans tell stories about escape to really tell stories about identity. And that's what we've learned from this series topic. Yeah. Yeah. Based on our three data points, I think we can say <laughs> definitively that everything about escape and identity are always connected. Yeah. No, no exceptions. I think I, while we're talking about these deep, deep topics, I do want to bring up existential angst. Great. As I am often want to do. But like, I mean, with Cavalier and Clay, right, you have, again, like that very adult fear thing, like that very real life fear where there's a war going on. So you have that, you know, existential dread that comes when something something that massively global is going on. And then also, I mean, Joe's brother, he's on a ship that is downed by a U-boat. And I mean, that always represents a certain amount of kind of cosmic horror, at least that feeling, right? When you know that people close to you are dying and you're never going to see them again. And you're in this like foreign, just, you're in this place that isn't the place you grew up in. It's not really home. And like, that's so much of like Joe's journey. And so there is, there's that very kind of realistic, this world existential dread there. And then with the prestige, I mean, we have, we talked about that at length with our prestige episode, right? With James, what was the thing? Like, what if you go to sleep every night? Yeah, yeah. It was like, what if, what if every time you went to sleep, you died, and like a different copy of you with all of your memories woke up in the morning? And then, <laughs> with nine nine nine, you have, and I don't think I mean the characters are often. I mean, the characters are obviously scared because they have, or they believe they have bombs implanted inside of them, and like they think they're in a flooding ship and they're gonna die, and they have a you know a finite amount of time to get through these puzzles and they have no guarantee that they're going to get through these puzzles. And I don't, but the characters never seem to like, they're so focused on kind of succeeding. They never have not a single one of them really. Well, Clover, obviously she has her breakdown, like goes crazy and will like kill you in several different endings. But besides that, a lot of the other characters are pretty together. Like they're not freaking out being like, Oh my God, we're sealed in. There are no windows. I can't see out. Like, what if we don't make it? Like people, they're pretty good about saying, let's just focus on the problem and try to get through instead of like, I would not be doing well in the 999 situation at all. I would freak out and need to take like so much Xanax. <laughs> <laughs> and I know this cause like, whenever I fit, like, I'm, I don't do well when I'm trapped in elevators, let alone like, what did, what did you call it? Like a death ship? A, psycho a psychopath's death ship. How you know, often are you getting trapped in elevators? Only really like twice. and what, But one time it was in Singapore. And in Singapore, if you get trapped in an elevator, like no one's coming to get you. They're like really bad about that. Were there. you alone with a boy either time? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was with my mom and my crazy uncle. So one boy. So nobody was talking crazy, about horrible. how wet No, no one was get. talking about. I have no idea what Akane and Junpei were talking about. I mean, like, I don't know word for word what they said in that elevator, but now I have to go and, like, replay so I can see that. Oh, it's good. It's a win. <laughs> Priceless. But I was wondering, for each of you, like, which 
kind of form of existential angst do you identify with the most most um like the cavalier clay variety the prestige variety or the 999 variety I'm, or not even like identify with but which like strikes the most fear in your hearts what's the scariest i think hmm i think i'm gonna have to go with the prestige and the idea of so many iterations of angiers and you know the angiers that never knows whether they're going to be the one going into the tank or appearing on stage and you know just things that are the same but also not the same i don't know it's i don't like it i think i'd have to agree like because i would say it well, the 999 one feels like it presents, like, the most, like, clear and immediate danger. It's also something that, while orchestrated by someone else, it, it feels like it's in your hands, right? Like, your your capability to deal with that situation is directly proportional to your likelihood of dealing with that situation. Which is one thing that I even remember as I was playing it, it seems like kind of a surprise that so many people... That so many of the characters seem to think that they like won't meet up again later, and it's not until after a little while that Seven starts pointing out. It's like, well, there's no way we're not going to meet up again because we need to get out through the doors, and you, you sort of have to play the whole thing under the assumption that it is a fair game, yeah, or at least a an unfair game that is at least internally consistent. Which it, it seems like it does strike that for me. The whole thing feels like it is a setup that is not just a setup to eventually you just end up in a murder room. It seems like it is here are like a set of rules that are enforced strictly, but the rules that are at least rules. So I feel like that one, like that kind of thing is I feel like less less scary to me just because you have some like control over your fate there. But yeah, I think the harder ones would be something like World War II. Just there's this thing that is happening that is so much bigger than you and you can't you can't do anything about that. And it's just going to keep happening and you're just struggling against it endlessly like joe does and just nothing keeps working i guess no i'm even just i'm gonna change to cavalier and clay because i was gonna say do it because i think that with something like the prestige i could see it's like something where you have to go into it and just sort of like stand on that precipice and make yourself do it every single day over and over and just that kind of like jump into the unknown but now that i think about it i almost feel like that jump into the unknown would be horrifying but less just like crushing than sort of the the direct opposite of the 999 situation where your ability to fight against this thing or be smart or work your way through it is going to increase your chances of being okay go to the extreme opposite end where you're sitting there just raging against this machine every single day and nothing ever comes of it you know you just keep doing everything you can and trying everything you can and again and again and again something happens that you had no control over and even then, so you've got Joe eventually does join the army and he joins the Canadian Air Force and he goes off to fight Hitler. And what does he do? He ends up one of two survivors in this Arctic base, has to spend all of his time just trying not to go more crazy and then gets obsessed with his base, is going to finally go kill some Germans and he finds one guy and he has that like profound realization that shit, this is just a person, you know, and realizes that not even that, this whole thing, he's been sent to the farthest corner of the world and nothing he's going to do there is going to do anything to help anybody like his brother. Like he understands that he can't bring his brother back, but he can't even try and save someone else. Yeah. And I don't know, I feel like that would be the worst one. Just knowing that 
just trying and trying and trying, and every time you do, you're just rewarded with, I mean, arguably just more failure. Well, I already said my pick. <laughs> Justin. Uh, I mean, the thing is, I think I, I come down pretty much where you do, Corinne, where just uh, wrapping your brain around exactly what that machine is doing and what you're dealing with. I mean, part of it is that we can't know, whereas, well, Angier can't really know either. Yeah, because there's, 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 the yeah, there's absolutely no real way of knowing. Unless there is a, an actual, like, physical sensation to the, like, teleportation aspect of it that he can feel. But is that something that he feels on one end where it's happening and on another end where it's, like, just happened to the other? Ver- like, so there's so many different fucking ways this could go. He has no way of knowing. And without knowing original versus clone... It becomes this messy, scary, awful, gross thing. Yeah, I mean, just think about the the first time he cloned himself. And the gun. And the guy with the, yeah, with the gun. And the guy, you know, he, the second Angier appeared and was very confused because he was in a different location very suddenly from exactly where he had been standing before. And I think, I, I don't think there was a physical sensation at all. I think one minute he's in the machine, the next minute he's like five feet away somehow and then suddenly he's shot and dead but like that angier had no idea that he wasn't the angier that went into the teleporter in, in his mind he was right he lived that moment yeah. and that's just scary i think that's the big thing like a lot of our discussions have kind of been built upon this idea that there is one of them that's like the real one like what if there's not like that whole idea that there's like i mean and i know we haven't like literally explicitly said this but it it's almost this kind of weird implication that there is, like, a soul, right? Uh, that one of them has, like, that one of them is, like, the real Angier. Whereas, I mean, what if literally the only difference between the two is that one of them's over there? Kagito ergo sum, right? Like, Yeah, sure. Like, they all they they all share this exact same identical lived experience. Yeah. But, I mean, on a scientific level, one of them is the original and one of them is a clone. On a, on a purely physical level, one of them was created seconds ago and one of them has existed for his entire life. Like, if we were to take both of those guys in the lab and, and you know, draw out some marrow or whatever it takes to carbon date a living human, we would be able to tell that one of them has only been around for however long. And Would we, though? I, I mean, it would, matter can't be created from – it can't be perfectly replicated. I think you're underestimating David Bowie. (laughs) (laughs) David Bowie could do anything, Justin. (sighs) David Bowie and Andy Serkis? Come on. Oh my god. (laughs) They could do anything. But even then, like, is is that what matters? Is the matter what matters? Ah. I liked it. I liked it. Um, No, but I mean it, though, right? I, I mean, yes. Like, if from a philosophical standpoint, no, of course not. From... From an, an existential standpoint, probably not. But as somebody who who tends to look at just about everything through a scientific lens and who will use that to soothe themselves if need be, yes, of course it matters. You can say, and maybe not with the science that was around at the time, but certainly if if that was to be happening today, there would be a definitive way to be like, this being has been alive for an hour and this being has been alive for... 35 years. So they're all the same person. It's just one of them is the original iteration. Right. 
I choose to believe that the original no, oh, it doesn't matter. Either way, the original dies either the first time or in the first trick. Yeah, no matter what, if you're gonna, if we are talking specific, if we are operating under the assumption that it is a one of those bodies has existed up until now, and this is putting aside some situation where like they got like split in half at one point and half of the atoms are in one and half are in the other sure like it something where it really is like a very binary thing uh then yes either in, in the first iteration where the one in the machine survives or in every trick where the one not in the machine survives as soon as you get one trick that that original body so to speak is is either shot or drowned so i th- the thing that makes the most sense to me is that the original item is teleported. I remember the other point I was going to make. <laughs> can you can you keep it long enough for me to... Hang on. Hang on. Let me make a Write note. Write it down. Let me make a note. Write it in your phone. All right, go for it, Justin. <laughs> the original item or being or whatever it is that's in the machine is what is teleported. Okay. And... And then a copy is left behind. And the copy is left behind. And... The copy knows on a on some level any any cognitive you know being that is taking part in this process knows that it is the copy mm-hmm. and not the original, and so the copy chose to kill the original Angier in the very first scenario because they knew it was the only way that they would survive, mm-hmm. and knowing that. I, the thing in the machine, and the copy of the original Angier also know that when I run the trick, I will be transported away, and the copy that is created will be killed. And so I will maintain my own existence and self-preservation. That's the thing that makes the most sense to me. Because the original Angier, if he, if the copy is created elsewhere and he stays in the machine, he would, like, he would then have to willing, willfully kill himself in the first iteration of the trick. Unless they don't know. Right, unless they can't know or don't know. Yeah, but for my own, for the sake of my own mind, that's the that is what I choose to believe. Do any of you feel that it is better for the clone to be killed, really, than like in the original? Is there a better choice? Like, if you had some say, and like, okay, this version lives, this version dies. Do you feel that if you had to make that choice, you you could say like? One or the other is more valuable to be kept alive. I mean, if I don't know, my immediate gut reaction is, of course, the clone should die. But if they, if the clone has literally all the exact same emotions and memories as the original, yeah, but the clone's not me. But I'm not. Ta- if it's not you, if it's someone else, if it's you, Jack, if it's someone else, and I'm pulling the trigger, yeah, you're you're like say Michael Caine in this situation, or like one of the blind people in this situation who. I don't know. You're you're someone else, like watching it happen. Right. Like he hands Andy Circus the gun. Yeah, yeah. And says, you know, shoot one of us. One of us if, has to go. If there are two. Yeah. And and I have to make the call. I would still kill a clone. Because I would self insert. Like if it was me in that situation, I would want the clone to die. But, but without being able to know who the clone is, I guess if I was outside that situation. I would probably shoot the one in the machine. Because, again, for my own peace of mind, what would make the most sense to me would be that the one in the machine is the clone. So the point that I wanted to make, like, 40 minutes ago (laughs) uh, was that 
you know, another way that this could have been accomplished is Angiers could have made a clone and then gone and established his, you know, lord whatever identity and then let the clone run the tricks and had this whole plan play out. However... How do we know that isn't what he did? I don't think he would. Why? Because he wants the the prestige. Although, I don't know if he would do that. Because if he was doing that, then he would definitely have to die being the first one. Maybe that is what he did. That makes sense. Well, he kind of learned his lesson about using doubles earlier in the movie, though. That's true. I don't think he would trust even a copy of himself. I mean, because like, like let's let's call the 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 double that he used earlier a copy of himself. Obviously, like loose terminology, but it will will draw the analog there. I I think that he learned his lesson about not being able to trust anybody else. That's why he became so secretive when he really threw this trick together, and why even like he even like Michael Caine wasn't in on it. It's, you know, it, the series of, of blind men who won't see anything. It it seems to fall back to that whole, like, it two people can't keep a secret, you know? It has to be, it has to just be him. And the fact that, like, realistically, he could have just, like, made a nice, happy home for, you know, him and all 99 of hims to... Mm uh to like hang out and live out their lives but instead he specifically set it up so that each iteration was killed and killed in water no less which looking back is another one of those surprisingly recurring themes across all three of the the pieces that we looked at this series i mean just it specifically death in water escape from water being trapped in water you know, the whole, all of 999 is based around the sense of being trapped underwater. I mean, in the prestige specifically, the, the deaths that really motivate this whole thing and that those failed escapes are all deaths in water. Thomas dies in water. Joe tries to kill himself in water. Joe's failed escape attempt early on when he, uh, is, is in the river and Thomas has to go in after him and Thomas hurts his ears. Yeah. Um, it's a wonderful lifestyle occurs in the river so people are terrified of drowning and every time we talk about escape we're really talking about identity nice summed it up <laughs> <laughs> i see your point though no i'm, I'm trying to i because i i doubt that everyone explicitly sat down to like use the same imagery right like that seems yeah that seems highly unlikely but i don't think it's you mean you don't think christopher nolan the creators of 909 and michael Shavon? Set down to, yeah. That that seems. We'll we'll call that a forty percent chance that uh, that they're all buddies and agreed that water is scary. Let's not forget uh, M Night Shyamalan too. True, water is scary. Open ocean. That's like one of my top two fears. Yeah, sinking ships is one of my recurring nightmares. Ever since I was little. Yeah, nine 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 must have been fun for you. Oh yeah, that's why I think that's why I had the existential. But I don't know. I might change my answer as well to Cavalier and Clay. But I don't think I would have had I not just, like, last week gone to the World War II Museum in New Orleans, which is a fantastic museum, by the way, and I highly recommend it to anyone who is at all, like, interested in, like, military history or U.S. history. But it's like, I don't know, You, I really, because I had, I was thinking about, like, Joe Cavalier a lot when I was there and that feeling of, like, he wants, I mean, even for when he's young and at the beginning of the book and he's going out and, like, finding Germans who he thinks 
like seem vaguely Nazi-ish, like to try to go and punch, and then it's you know, and then he ends up going and like enlisting, and he there's a sense of like, oh, I'm going to do something, and I'm going to like try to make a difference, and somehow it's gonna make up at least a little bit for my brother dying. But really, it's like when you're one person who's a, and this kind of applies to the prestige as well. Like if you're one of many people in this kind of feudal situation because like even if with Hugh Jackman's character if all his all his clones die they're still like there like they existed they still like happened and so in that sense they're still kind of present they're at least lingering there in the you know in his consciousness until he the last one of him dies but that idea of like trying to stand out or trying to do something trying to be the hero trying to like be that person whose actions really make a dent in this really kind of much bigger situation and then realizing that that's just impossible like what it's interesting with world war ii movies there's so much of an emphasis on like oh here are the heroes or here's this one guy who like fought off like 50 guys on his own or whatever there's always like there's a lot of especially with like propaganda films of the time there's always this try to like the sense of like, oh, you as a soldier can be the one, the hero who every, who stands out. But like in a real war situation or any kind of like kind of global crisis situation, you're one person in a much bigger picture. And it's very easy to feel like everything you do is useless. And even like with the comic books, right, with with the escapist, it's like that's the contribu- contribution they're trying to make to you know, fighting Hitler is just kind of by getting people's spirits and hopes up. But, you know, they, that doesn't always like work out like creative, creatively, it doesn't always like work out for them. And so the one way that they were succeeding ends up kind of becoming less of a high point for them than I think they had hoped for it to be. And with like the prestige, I mean, God, just imagine if all those clones had lived like somehow they all had survived they had an, either Hugh Jackman or Angiers decided not to kill them all or of their own accord they survived like that's can you imagine that amount of ambition that's like left over with all of them like if, if let's say what is like a hundred of them down there it looks like in the basement you know roughly yeah I'd say that's accurate like that many copies of a person who have that kind of like overwhelming debilitating ambition is like it's a toxic idea we should put all the Angiers together, alive, in a room, and make them dance. Dance. Think of all the Tonys we could host. <laughs> Think of all the Tonys we could win. All right, everybody. So I think that's been our, our topic episode for Escape. Thank you so much for sticking with us through that entire series. I think this has been a fun one. I I know that we went into this one not being 100% sure how we were going to relate everything, but I think we got there. Yeah. So next episode is going to be our read episode for our Solitude series, which is going to be uh, Haruki Murakami's Wind Up Bird Chronicle. After that, Lost in Translation, and then Gone Home. And I think that's all going to be great. So, till then, thank you so much for listening.